children wait in the water. Gods are gonna trouble the water. See that band all dressed in white. Gods are gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Israelite. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will be wrapping up yet another series. This time it will be our series on slave narratives um, before moving on to looking at Carrie Beecher Stowe and her take on on slavery in Uncle Tom's Cabin, and we'll also look at her other works. So that will occupy us for another month or so, at the very least. So uh, this episode uh, will look at uh, a relatively unknown slave narrative. I think this was the one that didn't have a LibriVox recording or any audible recordings that I could find. It, uh, I think this one may not even have like a Wikipedia page, which also makes it different than all the other slave narratives. So... Um, you know, it, it's probably not the most necessary to be here before you get to, um, Jacob Green's narrative. Uh, you're already, we're already 950 pages into this anthology and this one's only another, adds another 40 pages or so to it. So this is another episode that's breaking the hundred pages rule, unfortunately. But, um, I still think this one has some interesting things to teach us about slavery and the slave narrative. But before I jump into Jacob D. Green's narrative, I want to just say in general, I, I think, I, I hope I've convinced you over the last few weeks that the slave narrative is one of the, a, a, a crucial genre of American literature, and it's very diverse, and that they have a lot of different things to tell us, and they have to be read broadly, that if you just read something like Frederick Douglass's account, you're only getting part of the, of the story that these enslaved men and women, you know, were able to tell us. Um, now, these had various readership while these authors were alive, um, but they're important in that they helped the career of former slaves. They, they help people make a name for themselves, help them get into abolitionist circles, help them make some money um, so they could, you know, have their life in freedom. So, that's uh, another important part of it. I haven't said much about that, but there's there's a business aspect to these slave narratives as well. They're not just propaganda for the movement. They were ways that the movement could could help former slaves uh, get on their get on their feet. But uh, whatever the purpose for writing them are, uh, I think they they together do tell us about the horrors of American slavery quite quite well. Um, so. Jacob Green, um, pretty elusive writer, actually. Um, maybe as elusive as Gronosau, uh, I want to say. And if you're going through this list, I, I'm guessing your average college-educated, like history grad, you know, like a history graduate, would know Equiano, Nat Turner, Douglas, Sojourner Truth, maybe Harriet Jacobs, probably William Wells Brown, maybe Henry Bibb. Probably not. Craft, um, probably not. But Jacob D. Green in Gronosau, I, I doubt that would be on anyone's list unless they're a real specialist in this field um, or read this anthology. 
Um, most of the authors were engaged in abolitionist work and have pretty well documented lives through their abolitionist work. And what we know of Green really comes from his escapes, which he documents in this very, very short narrative. Um, so it comes from a long tradition of slave narratives, but it's less politically conscious um, and it bucks many of the conventions. So we don't got a lot of the focus on hypocrisy or contradiction or uh, sections of the narrative devoted to reminding the reader that slavery is an offense to American traditions or values or your values, whatever they may be, right? I think Harriet Jacobs is kind of saying your values of what a woman is are offended by what happened to me, right? You reading this have an idea in your head of what being a woman's like. It's not, doesn't, that doesn't include being harassed constantly by a pervy old man who, who chases you down for, for half your life. And women would say, yeah, I, I get that. I see that. Um, Green doesn't play those games. Um, I don't know. Maybe for Green, these arguments have been made and defended and aren't necessary. And he just wants to tell his story. Um, another thing about this narrative is this one was published quite late. It was published in 1864 after the Emancipation Proclamation, after slavery was on its last limb, essentially. So the propagandist function of the slave narrative is probably less crucial for Green's narrative. Um, it almost works for a comedic backstory or a comedic adventure story if the background of the story wasn't so so kind of tragic. Um, Green's narrative is really an account of tricks, lies, schemes, and manipulation, um, which of course is part of this enslaved person's experience where they have to use these strategies to survive and eke out a, a living if possible, to interact with whites, right? We, if you read the scholarship on slavery, you know how much uh, little schemes, uh, lies, white lies, are survival mechanisms for, for slaves. If we go back to the Charles Chestnut stuff we did with like the conjure woman, we see that's, that's of course set after slavery ended, but still the idea of black people having to manipulate white people to, to get a little bit ahead Right, and mostly they're fighting for low stakes uh, in, in in a lot of the ways we think about this. Like in the the, the conjure woman, there's they're low stakes, but sometimes it can be quite high as well when you're dealing with like people trying to escape or or make it through a week of work or protect family members. So these things that in in popular imagination may come off as like just little games they they played for for amusement actually were like crucial to their to their survival and in this case uh crucial to the escape of our of our hero um i i you know there's something connected in this narrative to like jack shepherd uh the english uh criminal if you know about him from the 17th century he was a young working class man uh who actually was able to inspire the working class by escaping from newgate the prison um before finally being executed at some point after a number of escapes, but he became like a folk hero during that time. Um, so, but his his adventures involved like schemes and tricks and, 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 and manipulation and lies and all that throughout his career too. And out of that, he becomes like a folk hero. I, I think Green almost is like presenting himself as America's Jack Shepard in a way, but instead of Newgate, we have the institution of slavery itself. Um, 
we have a story here of a person in opposition to their situation constantly, kind of like Bib in that way. Uh, Douglas, too, I think. A lot of these, I mean, the people who escaped slavery to tell these stories were people who have built up a tradition within themselves of resistance to slavery. And then they finally achieve it at some point. People who come to terms with slavery are less likely to, to escape in this way. So, but he, Green in particular, is seemed to be in constant resistance to this his situation, um, and and out of that, we he could be placed in 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 folk mythology if he just wasn't more. I mean, too bad he's not more well known, right? Because I, I think there's good stuff in this in this short little narrative. Um, the scheme starts from the very first page with a white boy stealing some corn and then trying to force some of the slave boys to take the blame. On the next page, we see the lies of white religion. So I guess there is a little bit of hypocrisy here documented, but it's not like it's just kind of talked about in passing. Um, it's not really presented as hypocrisy, but rather as a vulgar attempt to deceive slaves. It's almost laughable and jokeable. There's there's a bit of a uh, a joking quality to this whole account. This. Um, a page later, we learn that Green's mistress is an adulteress, uh, keeping two lovers on her side. And this situation leads to legal shenanigans when one puts gunpowder in the other's pipe. Uh, so it's, I mean, that's kind of a, there's, there's like just in the first three, four pages, you get all these kind of humorous anecdotes um, that, of course, are rooted in, in some pretty brutal like, realities of slavery. But... Um, but are just fun to read, I guess. Even the first time Green was flogged, uh, he was framed by his master's son for firing a pistol. So the flogging, of course, horrific, but the, the whole situation behind it is kind of, there's, some, there's kind of a comical aspect to it. And I, and I wonder if, if these are exaggerated stories. I, I'm not sure, but they seem to be presented in in a joking way. It's almost like as slavery's falling down around him, Green is is laughing at the entire institution um, in a way. Um, now, that all this talk of schemes and manipulation and, and backroom dealings and backstabbing leads to Green's three major schemes, his escape attempts in 1839, 1846, and 1848. Now notice he's out of slavery for almost 20 years before this, this account is published. So it's it's comes a bit later, and I think that that gap is larger than for any other narrative. Yeah, let, let's read a bit of this account, because the, the style here is also, I think, striking. In it's, it's different from the other narratives. He's talking about the, the master having the two mistresses. So, quote, at this time, my master's wife had two lovers. This same Barney and one Rogers, and they despised each other from feelings of jealousy. Master's wife seemed to favor Burmy most, who was a great smoker, and she provided him with a large pipe with a silver, German silver bowl, which screwed on the top. This pipe she usually kept on a mantelpiece, filled ready with tobacco. One morning I was dusting and sweeping out the dining room, and I saw the pipe on the mantelpiece. I took it down and went to the young master's William's powder closet and took out his powder horn, and after taking half of the tobacco out of the pipe, filled it neatly with powder and covered it over with tobacco to make it appear as usual. When filled with tobacco, replaced it and left. Rogers came in about 8 o'clock in the morning and remained until 11. When Mr. Burmy came, and in about an hour, I saw a great number running from all parts of the plantation. 
I left the barn where I was thrashing buckwheat and followed the rest of the house where I saw Mr. Burmy lying back in his armchair in a state of insensibility, his mouth bleeding profusely, and from particular, given it appeared he took the pipe as usual and lighted it, and it just got to his mouth when the powder exploded, and the party suspecting was Rogers, who was merely proceeding, end quote. So it, it gets blamed on this other lover, and he gets away with it. But it's this, this scene seems to be almost drawn from, like you could see, you could see the cartoon adaptation of it, and, and it would be kind of funny. It's, it's, it's like Tom and Jerry kind of stuff here. Not that I believe, don't think this this really happened, but it's it probably this kind of stuff happened all the time in in slavery. These kind of really little uh, little tricks. Right, it's how students put pins on the on the teacher's chair or whatever for for a little life. It just those little things that make life kind of a little bit bearable, um, all things considered. So I guess bravo to, to Jake Green here. Um, there's clearly a playful side to Green's narrative, rooted in the mutual use of tricks, uh, both the tricks by masters against slaves and those tricks of of slaves against masters. But not far under the surface of all this is the same descriptions of slavery's horrors that define the genre and that we're familiar with. One of the most memorable in this book comes from Green's experience in a slave auction. Uh, this is the closest, um, one of, maybe one of the closest I've seen to uh, the descriptions of how slaves are packaged. I think one other an account here talks a little bit about that. Is it, uh, is it Bibb's narrative? I'm, I'm not sure, but this one really talks about the idea that slaves were sort of really packaged uh, during auctions, um, where the idea that, you know, there was an effort to mislead the customer in a way through giving certain suits, uh, telling enslaved men, you know, who are for sale to act certain ways and to say certain things. And of course, this becomes a game where if um, people, the people for sale could then try to manipulate the customers as well. You had the salesmen trying to package them and sell them a certain way, and you have the but these aren't like cars, so they're they're human beings who are able to manipulate the situation as well, and they can try to you know eye up the buyers, see who's a cool master, know where they live where they're from and use that to try to get advantage for them as much advantage as they can get in the situation. So it's, it's, it's a relationship that they can kind of exploit. He also dwells, Green here dwells on the experience of enslaved women, um, particularly Sally, who had to watch as her family was split up during one horrifying day at the auction. She begs for her family to be sold as a unit and then she is struck and killed. Um, Reuben, Sally's husband, then attacks his master, beating him to death before being shot. So this horrific thing is, is put on paper by Green. Um, and he later composed a long poem about Reuben's death uh, here. Uh, and should I, should I read it? I, I, I kind of want to. Um, Poor Reuben, he fell at his post. He's gone like Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost. Poor Reuben's gone away. He's gone where pleasure never dies. He's gone in the golden chariot to the skies. Poor Reuben's gone away. For many years he faced the storm, he's gone. And the cruel lash he suffered long. Poor Reuben's gone away, and he and now he's left the land of death. 
he's gone and entered heaven's happiness. Poor Reuben's gone away. His friends he bid along his due, he's gone. When heaven opened to any view, poor Reuben's gone away. His pain and sorrow of the heart are past. He's gone. He's arrived in heaven just safe at last. Poor Reuben's gone away. Poor Sally, his wife, lays by his side. He's gone. For whom poor Reuben so nobly died, poor Reuben's gone away. A mournful look at her he cast. He's gone. Five minutes before he breathed his last, poor Reuben's gone away. In Jordan, the angel heard him cry. He's gone. Elijah's chariot was passing by. Poor Reuben's gone away. His body lays in the earth quite cold. He's gone. But now he walks in the streets of gold. Poor Reuben's gone away. So, in contrast to this, this is actually in maybe like the true climax of the narrative in a way, because his final escape seems more mundane than everything that's sort of been leading up to it. Um, a climax, it's, it's really a reminder uh, that violence was the reason slavery survived. It's never far from the surface of the narrative. Um, now, I think what Green is trying to say here is that neither masters nor slaves were fooling each other. I, I think ultimately, although there is this kind of jokiness through much of the narrative, you know, I mean, even though that's just coding the seriousness of the of what Green's trying to do, um, he's saying both sides saw each other who, for who they really were, um, and the the idea that whites could be easily manipulated by by slaves, or the idea that slaves bought what whites were selling them. That's really bad language. I shouldn't say it that way. But, you know, that the idea that blacks accepted without, uh, accepted fully the narratives that were coming from the pulpit or from the, the planter class, they weren't being accepted, clearly. So both sides saw the other as they really were. Um, and both sides knew the other side was being scammed. And this is played out in the auction where the customers the sellers and the commodity were all in on the, the game as well. And you just had, had to play it out as, as best you can. When the stakes were small, like uh, like stolen food and night of freedom, a little bit of escape, uh, it could almost appear to be a game at times, but it was not a game. And when the stakes were high, the brutal and tyrannical nature of the slave system came down on its victims, or in rare cases in the, you know, the just in the, the frustrations of those in bondage exploding into, into violence, as we saw in the auction. That's why I think the auction scene is the real highlight and the, the, the climax of this tale. So Green is kind of the slave trickster, um, but the tale ends with, with quite deadly seriousness, actually. So um, here, let, let me give you one more quote from the narrative of the life of J. Day Green. Um, about 10 o'clock, I stole out to the stable where all, when all was still, and while I was getting one of my master's horses, I said to myself, Master was in here at 6 o'clock and saw all these horses clean, so I must look out and be back time enough to have you clean when he gets up in the morning. I thought, what a dash. I should cut among the pretty yellow and sambo gals. And I felt quite confident, of course, that I should have my pick among the best-looking ones for my good clothes, my abundance of money, and my own good looks. In fact, I thought no mean thing of myself. Uh, just, just, uh, just a wonderful little piece of uh, American literature. I'm glad it's here. I'm glad we we, we can read it and, and think about this this narrative.
it's it's a lot of fun and and worth checking out. I don't know if it's been published separate from this um, anthology recently, or if it's, it's got its own book. Maybe it's in other anthologies of slave narratives. Maybe you can find it around if you can't find it in the Library of America version. But that that's where I found it, anyways. So that's it for these slave narratives. Uh, next up will be uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I think that's going to be like five or six episodes just on Uncle Tom's Cabin because it's a it's a pretty long book. But we'll um, we'll see what she says. I started reading it, uh, and like I admitted before, it's, I've never read it. So um, it should be fun. It should be fun to jump into something fresh, and it's always great to reopen up a Library of America volume that you haven't. You have know, had for a long time, but haven't haven't had a chance to, to crack into because there's always worlds of uh, worlds of wonder in in these books. So um, that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. See that band all dressed in red. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Ooh, it looks like the band that Moses led. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Oh, 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 oh.